You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like to encourage you to open a turn with me to the book of Amos into the last chapter, chapter 9. We're in our last remaining weeks working through the book of Amos as we do verse by verse. I'd like to begin our time this morning just by reading the first four verses, and that's where we'll be spending our time this morning considering those. We read in Amos chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the pillar capitals so that the thresholds will shake, and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will put to death the rest of them with a sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee, nor a survivor who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will track them down and take them from there. And though they hide themselves from my sight on the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent from there, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it will kill them. I will set my eyes against them for harm and not for good. Well, these verses again this morning are not particularly cheery ones. I think maybe there are parts of the Bible that uh, are just difficult for us. In our Bible reading, we might be tempted to just skim past verses like this. These aren't necessarily the passages that we're going to turn to immediately to share with friends. Maybe we're a little embarrassed by them, or at least we're tempted to kind of ignore them a little bit, skip past them. I want to suggest to you this morning that that's not the right move with these verses. If I were to look at these verses and try to put a single kind of word on it, I actually spent a bunch of time looking through a, a thesaurus just to, to kind of get my head around what's happening here. If you have the NASB in the 2020, I'm not sure what the other one was. Uh, the heading that it gives is that God's judgment is unavoidable. When we look at these verses, what we see is this comprehensive, this pervasive, this exhaustive judgment. And so I was looking at other words to try to decide what would be best to describe this. Other words meaning complete. Things like comprehensive, all-inclusive, full, full-scale, encyclopedic, thoroughgoing, far-reaching, sweeping, painstaking, wall-to-wall, no stone unturned, whole hog, permeating, omnipresent, universal, inescapable. What we have here is a judgment that cannot be escaped. There is no stone left unturned. We don't want to leave these verses as the sort of thing that we would ignore that we wouldn't want to spend any time thinking about. And I think there are several reasons why that's a bad idea. In our day and age, there are a lot of competing views of sin. 
There are a lot of people who would try to explain away sin, pretend that that it isn't such a big deal, that it isn't about a holy God and sinful people, but it's just a, a misunderstanding, or it's simply a matter of something that can be taught or educated or maybe even fought against and we might prevail. But the Bible tells us that there's so much more to it. And right now in our world, maybe you see what I have seen, that there are so many people in the last year and a half and even more that are trying to understand suffering and difficulty in in life without reference to sin and to God. There is great difficulty in our country right now trying to reckon with the sinful past of our country, again, without reference to God and to sin. There are attempts to deal with sin by uh, canceling others, which is kind of a contemporary form of exile. We don't do business with you anymore. We don't want to have a part of it, which might seem like it's foreign to the Bible, but exile is certainly not. There are cries all around for justice. But so often, our attempts to set things right when they're not done God's way, results in perpetuating injustice and creating new forms of oppression. One example that I've thought of that maybe you would agree with and maybe you wouldn't, but I think uh, events recently in the Middle East serve to remind us that our country has tried to to spread certain kinds of, of good things, democracy around the world. We would agree, I think, that overwhelmingly that's good. But the, the way to win is very rarely successful. Sometimes we see good, and sometimes we don't. And it's a a mixed bag. I think that there's a great need for Christians, for you and I who believe the Bible and who take it seriously. We need to be people who can articulate the kind of exhaustive, pervasive, total doctrine of sin Because it's only then in understanding that that we can understand the exhaustive, complete, and total hope that we have in the gospel. It's only by understanding and seeing God's judgment for what it is that we can see the gospel for the good news and the hope that it is. And so it's our task this morning to understand better sin and judgment so that we might better understand the hope that we have in the completed work of Jesus. So it's best to begin reminding ourselves this morning that sin and its consequences are pervasive. We begin the, verse, the chapter here by seeing that I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is the last of a, a series of visions that we've seen in Amos. The last several sections have started with, this is what the Lord showed me, or this is what I saw, and this is the last one. In this time, there's not so many uh, word pictures There's not so much uh, baskets of fruit and other metaphors and things like that. This one's much more clear. Here's exactly what's going to happen. God wants to make it obvious. And one of the things that we haven't really done much, and I, I kind of wish that we'd spent a little more time doing earlier, but now's as good a time as any, is to remind ourselves of exactly what the history is that we're seeing happening here in Amos chapter 9. That is, we know that Amos was addressed to the northern kingdom, the northern 10 tribes. Amos is called by God to to step into that place and speak the truth of God. Where about 180 years beforehand, Jeroboam had led a division of the people of Israel. So you'll remember, as the people 
were brought out of Egypt and into the land. There's a period of time with Joshua and then the judges. Then eventually the people decide we want a king. And Saul is brought forward as the king. Well, Saul is not the right man. God's man is David and David becomes king. After David, his son Solomon takes the throne. And there's a period of prosperity and a united kingdom in Israel. But immediately after Solomon dies, his two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, are are in conflict and end up dividing the kingdom, where 10 tribes go north with Jeroboam and two tribes stay in the south with Rehoboam. And so we have a division of Israel and of Judah in two separate kingdoms. And this message here is addressing the northern kingdom. I'd like for us to read just a moment or take a, take a moment to look back at First and Second Kings, just to make sure that we understand what's happening here so that we can see again the way that sin played itself out in the lives of these folks in, in Israel. Turn with me to First Kings chapter 12 and look with me at verse 25. First Kings chapter 12 and verse 25, we read this. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and the heart of this people will return to their, to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam. So the king consulted And he made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Let's just pause there for a quick second. Does that sound familiar to you? Building golden calves and saying, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the exact same thing we heard when they built the golden calf in the wilderness with Aaron. And now it's happening again as this kingdom is breaking off into the north. He doesn't want them to go south, so he, so he does this. He set up one calf in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and appointed priests from all the people who were not sons of Levi, who were supposed to be the priests. Then Jeroboam also instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast that's in Judah. And he went up to the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month the month that he had devised in his own heart. He instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Do you see what's happening here? When Jeroboam splits off to the north, he doesn't want people to return to Jerusalem to worship the way that God instructed them. And so following his own heart and his own desires, he sets up these new places of worship with these golden calves in the north And he makes his own feast. And instead of having priests from Levi, he selects others and he himself goes to the altar and officiates at at this service, at the altar. And so 
Bethel is, is the place of the king. It's his home. At this place, at this time in the northern kingdom, it's the economic and the political center of the northern kingdom. And we've seen again and again in Amos that this is a place of ease and it's a place of comfort. They've ha- but they've built an 180-year history on a foundation of idolatry. At this point, if people don't come to the city to worship anymore, if they change their ways, it's going to have impact across all of the people. They're going to lose money. They're going to lose influence. At this point, everything depends on them keeping this idolatry in place. But we hear then Amos declaring judgment. And let's remind ourselves again what happens in 2 Kings. I want to read one more passage. 2 Kings chapter 17 Always back and forth on whether to spend a bunch of time reading from Scripture, but I trust that it's God's word, so it isn't uh, without profit. But hear what happens. We just read about the beginning of the northern kingdom. Now let's hear what happens at the end of the northern kingdom. In 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 6, beginning in verse 5. Then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and led the people of Israel into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who'd brought them from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they feared other gods. They also followed the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from the sons of Israel, and the customs of the kings of Israel, which they'd introduced, the ones we just read about, Jeroboam. The sons of Israel did things secretly against the Lord, their God, which were not right. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. And they set up for themselves memorial stones and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did that the Lord had taken into exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, turn back from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you through my servants and prophets. However, they did not listen but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made before their fathers, and his warnings which he gave them. And they followed idols and became empty and followed the nations that surrounded them about which the Lord had commanded them not to do as they did. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And they made for themselves cast metal images, two calves 
And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the heavenly lights and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. They practiced divination and interpreting omens and gave themselves over to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his sight. No one was left except for the tribe of Judah. Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God either, but followed the customs which Israel had introduced. So the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and handed them over to plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nabat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and misled them into a great sin. And the sons of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed, and they did not desist from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, just as he had spoken through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel went into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now, why do I take so much time to read all that? I just really think it's helpful for us to understand what is happening here in Amos. Amos is one of those prophets He's one of those people speaking to the northern kingdom and telling them what is going to happen. That they've built up their entire lives now around this idolatry and they need to stop and they need to listen to the Lord. But all the way throughout all of these years, sin has pervaded their lives. It's a part of everything that they do. We've seen this again and again throughout Amos from the the way that people are spending their time sitting on couches and in leisure, eating food, uh, the the money that they're spending, the rents that they're charging, every little bit of, of life is all affected by the false worship. And now sin is permeating through every part of their life. And it's spreading from generation to generation. And it shows no signs of stopping. And the Lord says, no more. I think this is one of these places where if we can approach this from, a, from the, the frame of reference that we have from all of Scripture, we can begin to see how this speaks about what sin is to even our world and to our context. You maybe have heard phrases used about the doctrine of sin like uh, total depravity or original sin. When we speak about original sin, we don't mean that it's from the very beginning when, they were, when humans were created, we were actually created good by God. But from the very first humans, every single one of us has turned away from God. And it happened at the very beginning. Total depravity actually doesn't, wasn't designed to say that every single possible one of us is as bad as we could possibly be. But instead, it means that every single part of who we are and what we do is touched by sin. There's no piece that you can say, see, this part is still clean. This is untouched. Everything is touched and tainted by sin. And so that's what we mean when we say these things. There's one theologian uh, from the 20th century whose name was Anthony Hoykema, passed away in the 80s, but he spoke about this in a way that I think is helpful, removing some of those terms. Speaking about sin in terms of guilt and pollution. 
And I think both of these are helpful for us to spend some time thinking about. The first is guilt. When we think about sin, we want to think about uh, guilt. Status before the law. When Adam sinned, it was as if every other human sinned. Under the law, we were guilty just as Adam was. He was our head. You can think about it in a similar way that we see in Scripture, like when David is sent out to fight against Goliath on behalf of all the people, the, people, the people's victory stands or falls on whether David succeeds or fails. He is their head. He's the king. He's the leader. And again, we see a similar thing that's used of Jesus when he is the second Adam and he is our head. And in his victory, we have victory. In his life, we have life. In his death, our sin is taken away. So this, we already see, is how bad news can begin to open doors to good news. But we can also think about sin in terms of pollution. And Hoikema spoke about this in two different ways. He said, one, that we can, we can think about this pollution in terms of our spiritual inability. In other words, there's nothing that we can do to turn our hearts back to God. God has to do that work. We don't, we don't win that. We won't make the God the center and the, the goal of our actions on our own. God has to do that. We have this spiritual inability from birth. But also, we can think about uh, pollution in terms of pervasive depravity. Rather than total depravity, think about it as pervasive. That's the idea. It touches everything. There's no part of what we, how we think or what we say or what we do in the world that apart from Christ is good. All of it is tainted by sin. That's not to say that no one ever does a good thing. Jesus points to uh, even fathers, uh, earthly fathers, they care for their children. He can find good things in the world, but the idea is that nothing is untouched by sin. Every single thing that we do, that we say, that we think is touched by sin. That's again what we can see happening here is that Jeroboam, when he began this kingdom this way and built everything the way that he did, it carried on to every aspect of their lives. The sin was pervasive and complete through everything. We can see this in practical ways. In, in your life, maybe you've seen it. Or in friends or others that you know. We can see the way that uh, from father to child or, or mother or from families, we can see uh, patterns of abuse or addiction will continue throughout generations as habits that are, that are learned continue into other generations. That's the sort of thing that we're saying and seeing as possible with sin. I had a conversation not too terribly long ago Actually, a few of them, a few different conversations. But this particular one was thinking about uh, one that's uh, a topic that's hard for us to, uh, it's at least it's hard for me to not think about when I think about this passage. The conversation was about racism. And they were talking about uh, critical race theory, and they were talking about whether or not this, uh, I, the idea of systemic uh, racism was possible. And they were expecting me as a, I guess, whatever they predicted, as a Protestant, white guy, Baptist, evangelical type, 
that I was going to say, no, absolutely, systemic uh, racism, that can't be a thing. But instead, I took the opportunity to affirm the doctrine of pervasive depravity, that sin touches every single thing that we do. So is it any surprise that when someone creates a law that is based on a, on a prejudice, that that can continue to have effects? No, I see it in the life of Jeroboam. I see it in the people of Israel, that something can be instituted earlier on and carried on without a thought through generations. It's a sin problem. Let me, think of, let me try to explain it like this. We think about it this way, because I know this, is a, this can be kind of a hot-button topic, and sometimes I get myself in trouble trying to talk about some of these things. Think about it like this. You're at a restaurant, and at this restaurant, it's one of these restaurants that serves the same appetizer to every single person. You know, they give you chips, or they give you bread, or maybe they give you soup. Let's say this place is a place that gives everybody the same soup, Okay. So you're at this restaurant and they give everyone the same soup. Well, someone realizes that what's happening is the soup is poisoned. And they begin running around telling everyone that the soup at this place is poisoned. Don't go there. The soup is poisoned. Well, you do a little bit of research and you find out that it's not just the soup. Actually, everything that comes out of that kitchen is poisoned. Now, the people running around saying the soup is poison, I don't want to say, no, it's not the soup. It's not the soup. I want to say, it's not just the soup. Don't eat any of it. But in that analogy, that kitchen, that's the human heart. People might identify sin in one aspect of what we do. They might see our our laws, our prejudice. They might see the ways that that we have... uh, put sin into our world and identify it in one place. They might see it in the soup. And I want to say, yeah, it's there. And it's also everywhere else. It's in everything that we touch. I don't want to be heard to say that, uh, that racism isn't a problem because it is. Prejudice is a sin problem. And sin can be written into law and carried on for centuries. We see it here. We're not surprised when we read that because we have a, a understanding of the problem that exists with humanity. It's sin. That our false worship affects every single aspect of our life apart from Jesus. And so we've seen here at the, in the first verse that I saw the Lord standing beside the altar there's a question that so many ask about which, uh, your commentators will read this and ask, which altar is the Lord standing at? And many want to say, well, there's no chance that he was standing at the altar at Bethel, but that's what the context before it says. That's in chapter 8 in the previous verses. You would think about those altars that Jeroboam made that he set up. But remember, in that worship, in that false system, it was Jeroboam standing by the altar with his false worship. And now, where we would expect that, Amos tells us that this is the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, it's not a false Lord and a false altar. It's the true Lord standing beside the true altar and declaring judgment. 
Now, if sin is pervasive and it's everywhere and it touches everything, then that dictates to us some things about what judgment needs to be. That is, God's judgment must be exhaustive. It must touch everything. And that's what we find in the following verses. There is nowhere to hide from God's judgment. You can hear already in these verses echoes of what we heard previously before the, before the sermon in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take up wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, but there it was comfort. God's omnipresence, God everywhere is full of comfort but not here. There are other places in scripture, like in Romans chapter eight, where we read, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But here in Amos nine, height, depth, in the sea, there's nowhere to hide. Because this is God. It is an exhaustive list. The idea here is that Amos is ruling out that there is no possible place that you could hide. Even in Sheol, in, in the grave, in the earth, ascending even to heaven. Carmel, this high place, this green place, it means garden, to the bottom of the sea where a serpent would attack. And most folks, if you're reading carefully, that echoes a previous place where he talked about getting back home only to have a serpent bite you. That's judgment. And in these places, it's interesting that these verses give us these, these categories of ways to think about hiding from the judgment of God. I don't want to suggest to you that hiding from the judgment of God is a thing that people all around us do, and it's a thing that we can do as well, apart from Christ. It's something that we can uh, forget about, even as Christians, that God takes sin seriously, and he will correct that in his children. The first two of these categories, he gives five uh, what-ifs, the five even-if-I-go-to statements. The first two are Sheol and the heavens. These are kind of supernatural what ifs? And it's interesting that we can kind of think about each of these categories as the same sorts of categories that you and I might use to try to forget about or not think about the judgment of God, to create a kind of buffer between us and having to think about these difficult truths. The first could be these supernatural things. Perhaps it's a, another faith system or a way to modify Christianity to kind of make your own version that feels a little more comfortable and a little more authentic to me. We might turn to other beliefs that provide a kind of recipe of to-dos, that if I just do X, Y, and Z, then I can remove the reality of judgment. I don't have to feel guilty about myself. Well, we don't want to do that. The next two here uh, are places in the natural world. There's the, a mountain or in the sea. 
And again, we might be tempted to look to things in the natural world to try to buffer ourselves from God's judgment. There are all sorts of ways to do this. A few that I thought of as, we were think- as I was thinking about this was simply uh, remaining busy. Tech can be a big piece of this. Just staying occupied on your phone, playing games or listening to interesting topics or browsing, anything to, to keep our minds from having to dwell on the reality of the judgment of God, of sin in our lives, of the way that these things are affecting us. We might deal with problems by uh, assuming that there's an app for that or that there's some way to fix these things if I just Google it and spend a little time researching. But sin can't be fixed that way. There is nothing in the natural world that can repair sin. That's what this text tells us. And then finally, in verse 4, we read, Even though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it will kill them. In this, we can see a kind of, a kind of political solution. I just, well, accept our fate. We'll get along. Keep our head down. Maybe we'll make it through and things will be okay. I think we do this, trying to escape the judgment of God by just saying, oh, well, I'll just do the best I can. Maybe you find a small area of life. Like if I just do a really good job at work, if I just take up a hobby and, and people will kind of respect me in this area or in this role, Maybe if I just uh, make my home just right or do these things just right and I succeed in this area, then I won't feel any of the condemnation. But just hiding out in that way is no place to hide. It doesn't work. Another way that we can do that is by uh, retreating into um, a godless self-care Maybe you've heard people talk about self-care. There's nothing wrong with doing things to take care of yourself. God reminds Ezekiel at one point, or Elijah, I'm sorry, to take a drink, you know? Those are good things. But some people will kind of rely on, well, I'm just going to create these habits in my life. And when I have these good habits, that that makes me feel better about myself. We're exhibiting a control over a, a little area of life and saying, well, this is it and satisfying ourselves with that. But it doesn't doesn't hide us from the judgment of God. It just makes us feel better. Those aren't the same thing. They're not the same thing. Now, hiding from God's pending judgment is not the answer. Again, we're seeing a world right now that is crying out for judgment against injustice. And my question for you this morning, or one of several, is have we let the lion be tamed? God, the roaring lion from the beginning here of Amos. Judgment. Have we reduced his message to get along, be nice, forgive one another? 
Have we forgotten that from the very first chapters of the Bible, when one brother murders another brother, his blood cries out. Atonement is not achieved until Jesus comes. And there is no peace without atonement. In 1866, there was one of the final major cholera outbreaks in the city of London. And this time, the outbreak was stopped because of an epidemiologist named William Farr. Farr was working off of what he had learned from previous epidemiologists was that the transmission of cholera, as you may know, is through water. The water sources had been corrupted and people were getting sick. There was uh, construction going on in that part of London. It was being built up and a lot of work had been done there and that had destroyed, or had, had messed with the water system. And in June of 1866, that's the first modern water boil alert. You may have seen this, when a water main breaks or something like that, the, the county will release a boil alert telling you you need to boil your water if you're in this area because it's potentially con contaminated. And the idea of that is that you would take the water, you've probably done this before, do a rolling boil for one full minute. And that will kill then every last bit of the harmful bacteria or viruses that are in there. Otherwise, what you think is a refreshing drink of water is actually going to be something that will kill you or could kill you. In a very similar way, the heat of God's judgment is what will remove every last particle of sin in this world. We don't want a God who is powerless to remove and deal with sin. And we don't want a God that just says, it wasn't such a big deal. You tell that to the, to the people who've experienced genocide or severe abuse People who've lost everything, just tell them it's not such a big deal. The Bible never takes that move. It never says it isn't a big deal. Forgiveness isn't a small thing in the Bible. Instead, it says sin is a big deal. It's bigger than any of you realize that it is. It's pervasive. Judgment is exhaustive. But the good news, of course, is that God is faithful to his covenant. And we have a reminder of that right here in these verses. The very last line is, I will set my eyes against them for harm and not for good. Actually, all through these verses and the previous verses and in previous weeks, we've heard language that is almost, in many cases, pulled directly from the book of Deuteronomy. You may or may not remember that the book of Deuteronomy ends with a series of blessings and curses that are pronounced on the people and the people agree to. They say, we will obey you, God, as we enter into the promised land. And if we don't, these are the curses that will come upon us. Many of those same curses are the things that Amos is declaring are going to come on the people. They're not surprising. They're pulled from the covenant that the people agreed to. And here again, Setting my eyes on, the face of God on, is something that we hear, usually in contexts of blessing. And only a handful of places in Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, or in Leviticus and Jeremiah, do we hear it in a sense of harm. But even then, it's toward children 
who are covenant members. Even in the middle of this destruction and of this judgment, there's a reminder that God is faithful to his covenant promises. God is always faithful to his word. You know, in the Bible, the covenants, there are a lot of them. And they're kind of layered on top of each other. And it reminds me in a case like this of something that I read in in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you will remember that book. There's There's a place in that book where the witch tries to call to Aslan's attention this deep magic that he knows he has to listen to. And according to that deep magic, he has to die. But what they don't know or what the witch doesn't know we find out a little bit later is that there is a deeper magic still. And that's what we find in the covenants in the Bible. This covenant here ends with with destruction. We've already read from 2 Kings that the people of Israel, they're spread abroad. They're taken away by the Assyrians. The northern tribe does not return. No one knows where those tribes ended up. They're spread out. They're destroyed. That's the end of them. But the end of that covenant, the end of that piece of scripture isn't the end because there's an older covenant still. There's the stories that we hear of God and Abraham where God made a promise to Abraham that through him and through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And in Genesis 15, when, God, when Abraham is unsure about whether God will keep the promise, God has him cut animals, and God himself walks through, goes through the animals, where normally in a covenant, you would have both members do that by saying, if I don't do my part, the punishment lands on me. But notably in Genesis 15, only God walks through the pieces. So that if the, if the covenant isn't fulfilled, God will bear the punishment. And so this is a reminder for us. It's a reminder that helps us to look forward to God's ultimate faithfulness in Christ. Jesus is the new Israel. He is the the new Adam. This is how there can be forgiveness and judgment. We don't want to let the judgment go because that's what means that the sin will be boiled away, will be removed, will be no more, and it will be completely accounted for. But at the same time, instead of looking out there at others, instead of accusing others and just seeing sin as the system or out there, we instead notice it in our own hearts. We see that I'm the problem. I belong under judgment. I belong on this end of the eyes of God. But we don't share a half-hearted, hopeless, wimpy gospel. We don't have a good news that isn't applicable to the hardest parts of life. The good news that we have in the Bible isn't good news that says things aren't really that bad. 
Sin is pervasive. It affects everything. God's judgment is exhaustive. It will eliminate every last ounce of sin. He will not leave evil, oppression, and injustice unchecked. But when we see that we are sinners, we can turn to Christ. We can repent of that sin. We can place our trust in him. And then, as we'll see in the coming verses and in the coming weeks, there is hope. There is something that we are looking forward to. And we are guaranteed a seat at the table. We are guaranteed celebration. We are guaranteed that we will be part of that world where sin is no more. That is hope. We don't get there without judgment. But we can celebrate knowing that our judgment has been completed already. Jesus took it for us. If you're here this morning and you have not understood or heard that truth, I pray that you will hear it this morning the first time. That you would understand that you are under God's judgment because of sin. But that if you would look to Christ, if you would repent of that sin and place your trust in him, you can be a part of his new and lasting perfect kingdom. Let's pray. Our God, I pray this morning as we spent time considering your words that we wouldn't be discouraged. I pray that you would help us to understand the reality of sin and the way that it pervades everything that humans think and say and do and create. But I pray also that you would help us to know what a full and wonderful hope you've given us through Jesus. That we have a hope that again can go through, pervade every single thing that we do. That we have hope in, for the ways that we think, that we speak, that we interact with one another, the ways that we organize our relationships and our neighborhoods and our countries, that there is hope for this world. Help us to know that and to rest in the work that you are doing and that you will see through to completion. Help us to rejoice that you are a holy God and that we are called your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.